this week on the podcast talking about the nonprofit newsfeed.com roundup of great news in the nonprofit world. Carisha Martinez, Nick Azale, thank you for joining. Let's jump into it. Carisha, Nick, what do we have today? Hi, George. Well, to start us off, we want to talk about some numbers. According to the quarterly fundraising report, nonprofit fundraising was up 10% overall in 2020 compared to 2019. This, of course, comes on the heels of the pandemic, which has reshaped every aspect of our lives. And this is a really encouraging sign. But there are some causes for concern that this may not, in fact, be sustainable. Because while we saw an increase in fundraising in in terms of volume, um, donor retention continues to drop by approximately 4% from this report, uh, even after new donors are acquired or reactivated. So in addition to that, we're seeing a decline in retained repeat donors. So at the baseline, we're getting more cash, but in some ways it's more of a one-off kind of donation. It's not that sustained donation that really nonprofits rely on to keep to keep growing every year. Um, so just something to kind of uh, keep an eye on moving into 2021. Yeah, it raises the question, is this a one-time windfall with one-off donors, or is this something that you can bank on, rely on. It's it's hard to say. You know, it's a, these are small sort of views into over macro, uh, macro macro behaviors. So I think my general analysis for this is always like talk to your doctor. Results may vary. Look at your own data. Look at your own donors and see how it matches up. Because uh, you know these are these are large macro pieces, and you can kind of maybe see if there's anything that in your own data, but. Uh, it is a positive indicator anytime we see more money going to more nonprofits. And speaking of more money going to more nonprofits, uh, a little tidbit that <laughs> turns out to be quite a windfall for um, national service is that within that stimulus bill from that the Biden administration passed and uh, Biden himself actually signed last week, uh, the, stim- the stimulus relief bill included a $1 billion increase in funding to AmeriCorps that would be doled out over the next three years. Now, AmeriCorps is the nation's national service program. If you're not familiar with it, it's like the Peace Corps, but the domestic version. Um, and the extra funding is being applauded by those in the nonprofit sector, uh, including advocates and proponents of national service, which is uh, risen to the top of a list of priorities, particularly among uh, Democrats over the past couple years. But um, it's great to see that both national service and nonprofit uh, missions are are really being prioritized in, again, this stunning and incredibly large stimulus package. Yeah, I mean, clearly the uh, Jesse Colvin, CEO of Service Year Alliance that helps run this is uh so this is a, quote, monumental first step for the administration. Uh, it's a lot of money. It's really good to see for volunteer programs like this that have been around for a long time. It includes $620 million for uh, the state and national programs, which provide grants to local nonprofits, to hire AmeriCorps uh, members. So, like, keep in mind, like, this isn't just, like, going into, like, random buckets. This is employment. These are people working um, on the most critical things that our country needs right now. $148 million for the National Service Trust, a program that pays uh, off some student loans for AmeriCorps alumni. 
and 80 million boost for AmeriCorps Vista, which works with local nonprofits and governments on anti-poverty programs. I love this. Excellent. <laughs> and it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. All right, Karisha, you want to talk through our summary? Yeah, lots of interesting stories in our summaries today. Um, we can start with this article from the Nonprofit Times that reads, Church Funding Lag Behind Other Nonprofits in 2020. Um, and this is coming from a report saying that more than a quarter, about 26% of all nonprofits reported cash donations at least 10% greater during 2020, um, which is an interesting kind of donation to look at, right? Especially when we think about churches, most people, when they go to church, or at least when I go to church, um, they usually have a basket that goes around of some sort, or you make a donation that way. Um, so you think about cash donations falling, especially in relation to the pandemic. Not as many people can go to church anymore because, you know, large gatherings are a little bit dangerous these days. Um, and thus the tithes and offerings could also drop as well. Um, so we're seeing uh, among some of these church nonprofits, 37 reported at least a 10% gain uh, or compared to non-ecumenical nonprofits compared to 13% of all churches, um, which had significantly lower. Um, and this was taken from a group of about uh, 562 churches. Um, so relatively smaller sample size, um, but interesting to think about as we uh, navigate from digital to in-person um, and back. I'm shocked it wasn't a bigger hit actually. Like, I gotta be honest, you know, if you're talking about cash exchanges and, and in-person type of giving, it, that just shows how strong actually I'd say the faith community is and uh, with regard to donations in that culture. Yeah, you also think about people who attend like online church. Some people do like Instagram live services or like Facebook live services um, and how churches might be lagging a little bit behind in terms of those digital donations. All right, what else do we have? Uh, we also have this article from the NPR, uh, from NPR that says the Met considers selling its art to stave off financial shortfall. Again, another thing kind of in the wake of COVID, um, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City uh, is considering selling its artwork to cover operational costs as it falls short of about $150 million in revenue. Um, and this is a pretty big deal. They have an association of art museum directors who really regulate when and where art can be sold. Um, and these regulations have been loosened a little bit again to uh, kind of make up for those more financial issues that um, some museums may have. Um, but they've had a lot of layoffs, about 81 employees in customer service and some sizable cuts some sizable salary cuts um, in top executives. But interesting to think about, one, people not going to the museum, money isn't coming in, um, and the next step is selling art, which should be a little tragic. Yeah, I can't imagine that, like, the people that originally maybe, like, left their endowment, their art endowment, to, to be governed by a museum is, like, put a little rider in there and been like, yeah, if times get tight, you know, go, go sell the Monet. It's fine. You know, like, they... <laughs> They probably wouldn't love that. And there may be stipulations on some of that as well. Uh, we're not, <laughs> I have to bring it up uh, because you can't stop me from talking about NFTs and we'll get to it a little later, but I think there's a little opportunity for the Met to maybe keep the physical asset, but float the NFT uh, 
a sort of non-fungible token of art, potentially. I think uh, someone should send this to them. There's an idea. Um, but Muhammad Ali and uh, their uh, their nonprofit is actually partnering with something that they're releasing uh, to, to raise a little fund. So ideas here, just giving them away, handing them out. What else we got, Karisha? <laughs> Um, our next story, which I think, George, you might be particularly oh, excited for. <laughs> you don't have to dwell on it. But this do mine it. Reads, Jack Dorsey will convert NFT tweet auction uh, proceeds to Bitcoin and donate them to charity, um, which is kind of an interesting concept as I was reading this story. Basically, the Twitter co-founder and CEO, Jack Dorsey, plans on selling his first tweet via NFT and taking that money and donating it to Give Directly, um, which is a nonprofit that lets donors send money directly to people living in poverty, um, specifically on the continent of Africa. Um, but interesting to think that you could sell a tweet. <laughs> exactly. And it's this idea of ownership. So we will continue to cover NFTs and even more so if people reach out and be like, no, 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 seriously, we don't get it. The non-fungible tokens. And you saw even in the last week, the $69 million going for uh, Beeple's a uh, bit of art that's like an incredible amount of money, making him like the third largest like living artist to ever receive that much for, for a piece of art. So what are we talking about here is that all this like nonsense about blockchain that people like say, you know, spray and pray around actually has a finally wonderful use case, proof of ownership in a shared ledger being like, all right, who owns this thing, this tweet? For heretofore created by, and they can look at the signature of like, okay, Jack Dorsey is like officially saying, I'm not going to do this again. This is the only one of this digital print of my first tweet. And this person who lives at this address, here was the purchase date. And that's shared between everybody. So no one can like steal it. Yeah, you can copy the JPEG, but you don't own it. The idea of ownership now, and that sort of like humble brag on your like Twitter profile being like, I own the first tweet of this platform. Like people do silly things and people do very silly things when it comes to identity and our identity is wrapped in our digital personas, even more so during, as we've realized this past year where we're just sitting behind screens. So I'm super excited about this. And I also like seeing Jack Dorsey step up as, you know, um, a, a donor in that mindset, not just like, you know, cashing another check, which he probably doesn't need. And there's another nuance here that I think is important. These newly minted million and billionaires coming out of this crypto world and also new, uh, newer tech money. Think about where they like to give transparency of Give Directly, right? This organization who actually is really about sending dollars directly into the hands of stakeholders in the field rather than to an intermediary layer of services, which can be helpful, um, is, is there, uh, was his at least, uh, first thought for that. So how is your nonprofit starting to think about the narratives that will attract this next generation of wealth? So I, I put it in here for a reason, Karisha, not so I could just say the word NFT again and again, which I will continue to do. But there was a point. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's pretty interesting. You think about your digital footprint, right? What you leave behind and to think that you can create these things and then sell it as an NFT um, really goes back to that Met story that we were talking about. Maybe we have like virtual reality museums, which would be crazy to think about. Well, that's exactly it, though, right? If they own the original art, they have license to then say this is the official NFT of this particular statue, this particular piece of work. 
and they could NFT the museum or certain batches and do, you know, one of one type of prints and be like, there will never be another of this. Like, this is the owner. And by the way, here's the cool thing. We'll, we'll have a live update of whoever owns it below mm. each painting. Now, is that, you know, is that selling out or is that saying like, wait a minute? No, we have to understand that art is going through a digital renaissance and a new concept of ownership. It is so exciting for artists because to continue the rant, artists actually continue to get a cut of the future transactions. In the past, an artist only gets that first sale. They don't then get to reap 10 years later when it's being sold at auction at Christie's from one millionaire to one billionaire, that appreciation, which by the way, tends to be far more than the original sale of the art. In this case, the artist will continue to get royalties when the value of that art increases. It's fundamentally different and fundamentally more fair. Um, this is good news for art, but art needs to survive. And so I'm saying it again, Matt, consider it. You have, I'll bid on it. I'll put a bid on stuff. Yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. And I think it is more fair because you sell a painting for what, $100, then like five years later, it sells for 100000 You don't even get to see that money. Um, but we could talk about NFTs forever. I'll move on to our next story. <laughs> which is the Baltimore Sun deal sets up major tests for nonprofit news model. Um, and what this is, is um, local papers like the Baltimore Sun um, kind of struggling in terms of finances. So we have some nonprofits called, uh, the nonprofit is called Sunlight for All Institute. Um, and what they do is they pretty much help these local newspapers um, financially and help them become part of this kind of nonprofit model. Um, and it's really great because a lot of these local newspapers are one in the community um, to, you know, provide uh, really great stories, a lot of times unbiased stories um, and are really part of their community. So great to see that this new model is uh, coming and we'll see if it works. Yeah, we've covered it a little bit before where we're seeing nonprofits step up in terms of that model for news and the public good it truly is. Um, so this is great. You know, you don't want to see uh, great papers with um, with a history and also staff of people that are used to covering important information uh, just sort of disappear because of a revenue model. Right, exactly. And then our last story in the summary titled A Needed Boost, Paycheck Protection Loan AIDS Nonprofit uh, Hit Hard by COVID-19. And this is a story coming from Columbus, Indiana, I believe, um, with the nonprofit Lincoln Central Neighborhood Family Centers. And they do a lot of really on the ground work um, dealing with residents who are seeking financial assistance or kind of any other assistance that they would need day to day. And since COVID has hit, uh, there have been maybe two employees that really haven't taken a day off. And I mean that pretty literally, they say they've been working seven days a week. Um, and with this new protection program, um, one, more money is coming in and two means that they'll be able to hire more staff and thus kind of reallocate work a little bit better um, and giving these people who are doing really essential work a little bit of a break. Um, so that's really exciting. Um, and sort of a feel good story, I think. Yeah, it's a small but important reminder that, yeah, this may be like a small one-off story, but nonprofits absolutely benefited from the PPP money from last year and hopefully from this new $1.9 million stimulus. Uh, and that leads to, again, employment. The nonprofit sector employs roughly 10% of the U.S. labor force. And so, um, I mean, you know, I, I like seeing these stories and realizing like, oh, wait a minute, those dollars flowed right to somebody working and working for a good cause. All right. Do we have any 
other resources or opinions to highlight before we move into feel good? No, let's dive right in. Okay, Nick. Sure, I can take it away. This is a really interesting story coming out of Poland where a Polish uh, teenager named Christina made a website that mirrors that of a cosmetics company, but when in fact it's really in some ways a digital hotline for folks experiencing domestic violence abuse or, or other forms of abuse to contact um, psychological or legal uh, help within Poland. And when we think about kind of the broader narratives of using, you know, digital tools to get people help, in this case, um, in a covert manner for, for people who really need it, uh, it's, it's kind of an incredible. And this was this this whole project was started um, by Christina, who was 17 at the time and is now pairing with a Polish nonprofit called the Women's Rights Center uh, to getting help to, to victims of uh, domestic violence and abuse. Uh, really an incredible and an inspiring story, you know, a, a tough topic. Um, but unfortunately, you know, domestic violence and abuse is, is pervasive um, in all parts of the world. But uh, one teenager is is making a real difference um, in in Poland, and and hopefully others can kind of follow suit and think of creative ways to to help people out who need it. Yeah, I, I think the important nuance here is you know understanding that when you're in lockdown, you may be locked down with somebody who is potentially an abuser, or you're not able to speak on a phone. Uh, one of our past clients, Crisis Text Line, also sort of addressed that uh, very directly by saying, like, look, text first is a medium in which people need to reach out because guess what? It can be done quietly. It can be done, you know, in a, in a school bathroom where no one can overhear you. Uh, but this can be done in sort of like broad daylight because you're saying like, yes, how long has your skin condition been going on for? And someone can actually have this sort of coded communication in public with an expert and they both have this sort of like narrative template of what each one of these uh creams or rashes might be uh actually code for uh and so it's it's great thinking um and it's good to see i also think there's like other opportunities to think about how language is used in the context of your stakeholders and really viewing it from the ground level and how that has fundamentally been different um, in a lockdown scenario. I know, knock on wood, we're going to be moving out of it, but it's a good perspective. Absolutely. And and actually, Poland has, has seen um, uh, almost a, a renaissance of activism from young people, especially among women, in protests of um, new abortion laws. And, and this kind of fits into that space of, of helping young women in, in in Poland in particular. Um, and I, I think you're right. There's there's lessons to be learned uh, uh, from this and, and and ways to kind of expand it, for sure. Clearly, there was more news that we didn't fully cover, but you can find that at nonprofitnewsfeed.com. This was everything that we found interesting from the past week of March 15th. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Krisha. Thanks. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us.
Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 